Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest, and today we are airing a special bonus episode on the ongoing revolution in Iran. I'm sure, like all of you, I've been following this story closely in the news since September when 21-year-old Masa Amini was arrested by Iran's morality police for allegedly wearing her hijab improperly and was beaten so severely in police custody that she died on September 16th of 2022. This tragedy ignited a revolution in Iran that is ongoing, and I have been so moved by the stories and videos that show crowds of unarmed people confronting the government chanting women, life, freedom. Many, many protesters have been killed, including children, and I have so badly wanted to support and help, but I have not really known what to do. Then a couple of weeks ago, through my former professor and friend Beverly Allen, I met two Iranian-American activists who were eager to share their voices with the American population outside of the Iranian-American community. We will be featuring Iran as a country later in season three as part of our season on global patriarchy, but we knew that this story was too urgent to wait until then. So I'm honored today to introduce Dina Asna and Sari Sakhazadeh. Dina Asna was born in the 1960s in Tehran, which is the capital city of Iran. She left Iran with a scholarship from the German embassy in the mid-1980s and then studied and worked in Germany for 21 years before moving to the U.S. in 2015. Dina worked as a computer scientist until 2016 and then as a consultant, artist, and activist. She is the founder of a nonprofit called Iranian Women in Network or I Win, whose mission is empowering women through art. Sahi Sahazadeh was born in Tehran also, but in the mid-1980s during the Iran-Iraq War. She studied polymer engineering at Tehran Polytechnic and moved to Europe for her master's degree and her PhD studies in material science and engineering. Sahi lived in France and Belgium for six years and then moved to the U.S. after her Ph.D. graduation. She worked at Harvard Medical School as a postdoctoral scholar and then moved to Minnesota in 2018. She currently works as a senior biologist at 3M. Sahi is passionate about women's rights and has been an advocate of diversity and inclusion both at work and in her community. I'm so grateful to have both of you with us today. And let's start out by talking about the history of women in Iran and some of the factors that have led Iranians to this moment. And Sahi, maybe we can start with you. Sure. So if you go way back into history of Iran, women were very prominent and women had prominent roles, actually. We had women who were Navy commanders, if you go like 2000 years back. And our family structures were very matriarchal, but as time progressed and patriarchy diffused all over the structure of of the world, well, women's roles became smaller and smaller and Iranian women tried to define this concept. So I think the very first time that we hear the idea of emancipation of women in Iran is around 1848 by a woman called Tahereh Qurratul Ain. She is the first woman who appears unveiled in public. And she 
goes without wearing a veil and starts talking about the advent of a new religion. It caused a lot of shock and ultimately she was sentenced to death. When they were coming to kill her, she said, you can kill me anytime, but you can never stop women because the emancipation of women has started. So knowing that back in 1848, this idea was going on, we can say that the women's rights movement and activism in Iran dates really back in our history. And this has been almost a Sisyphean struggle. Women can pushing, pushing, demanding what is their basic human rights. Sometimes they make some gains and then they are set back like far, far away. So this has been going on and on. During the Pahlavi time, the so-called Shah time in Iran, in the time of Reza Shah, the, the first Pahlavi king, he came with the idea to remove this hijab. It was also, it's funny, but it was also compulsory. So he forced a law that they remove the chador and the hijab, and she, he wanted to really, you know, give a push to the society that they can, you know, adopt more in the the kind of a modern lifestyle. It is, until today, it's being criticized. We all believe in that, that nothing which is being forced from the government to the people is not right. Still, we want to give a big credit because that was the opportunity. It opened up really space and opportunities for women and girls to come out, to shine, to claim position that they never had in the politic, in the sport, in art. And I have to give also a lot of credit to the current, I don't know, we call it ex-queen or the queen of Iran, Farah Diba Pahlavi, who was really an advocate for women's right and women's activity during the Shah time. I have to say also they definitely paved a way for whatever is happening today. Even though I have to say that work was not a deep work. It was something that they were really, as I said, they were trying to give the society a push that deep in the culture, deep in the religion, and even deep in the region has not been matured yet. But it has been a big help to whatever is happening today in Iran. To give you a picture, what was the life about for women and girls in Iran? before the revolution happened, the revolution 1979. We had women at the level of the minister. We had actually built up our female athlete teams that they were participating in the worldwide you know, competition and they built their own career around being a female athlete. We didn't have such a thing before. We had our artists. It's funny to tell you today in Iran, since the revolution time, women are not allowed to sing. You cannot have a single woman singer, you know, having a program or having a concert. It's all all forbidden. Sometimes even we are coming to this time, but sometimes when they stop a concert because they are too many for them, too many females playing in the orchestra. And that's, that's too much for them. They stop the concert, they cancel everything, they send everybody home. But anyways, yes. And then also I have to say, we had women 
in the being actually scientists. We had women in the organization and nonprofit organization, charity level. And we, we had, honestly, we had the choice. There have been families where the people who chose to have the hijab or to choose to practice Islam in a very kind of a maybe traditional way, living next to each other, the cousins, the sisters even in one family, and those who wanted to live more a modern lifestyle and a free, you know, be a free woman from this. We respected each other. We respected each other's choices. We had authors and poets, and we could, you know, we could even see that the woman can build around their own voices. We had women activists and all this stuff. This was this was welcomed by the government and it was actually promoted and supported by the government at that time. And it was also little by little gradually it was going to impact the culture, impact those, you know, things that I was talking about, which was deep in the family root, because they could see that they sent their daughter to the swim team. And that swim team took the daughter to the other cities and then the other, even being in an international competition. This is, I think, it was the intention at the short time to show and practice something. And per doing that, they could adopt a new culture. But it was not much about educating them and giving them, as I say, the deep tools. But their life was really honestly similar to what you see every day today in U.S., in you know, in Western countries, very, very basic things. Students at the school, I went to school with boys and girls together. Today, we don't have that. These are, these are simple things. And this was the time that we could decide what to wear and how to really live our normal life as a woman. I want to picture two images for you because actually these are two pictures that I saw in one of our family photo albums. The first one, my mom is a young teenager. So you see a group of family members just picnicking outside. So my mom is wearing an oversized shirt and she's wearing jeans and there are boys around her at the time they actually the fashion of that time is getting pretty much close to now like boot cut jeans and stuff like that there are some elderly who are sitting in that picture and they are wearing some kind of white fabric chadors so that's gonna be the fabric that you will put on top of your head and it drapes down so you're not covering any part of your face but what they are wearing is whitish, creamish, so you do not have the black. And then you see one girl who is dancing. She is wearing some kind of dark mustard uniform-like, and she's wearing stockings. And there is a guy also who is jumping up and down next to them. Few pages later in that family album, I have my mom and three of her friends and their body is absolutely shielded inside layers and layers of fabric so what they are wearing is a long uniform it goes way under their knees it doesn't go as low as their ankles but it's below the knee they are also wearing pants 
and shoes. And they are also wearing a kind of scarf that is called maknae. And there are different types of covering for hair. This one sits in a triangular, so it's a tiny, well, initially started as a tiny scarf, but it got bigger and bigger. So it sits in a triangular way above your head, and then it is wrapped around your chin. So my mom and her three friends, they look huge, but at the same time, very little. You know, you no longer see a frame. You are saying, I don't want to say this, but you're seeing a piece of furniture, mm. you know, they are wrapped around a cylinder of fabric. And it is pretty interesting for me how everything suddenly changed. And I I must say, as I was, you know, doing my homework for this podcast and looking around, the revolution initially started as a coalition of different groups whose idea was to topple the monarchy more for financial freedom and some political freedom but ultimately it was overtaken by those who were more uh, Islam oriented who were led by Ayatollah Khomeini and they had a vast network through the mosques all around Iran and because if you read different articles, there is this notion people feel that the revolution got hijacked. Others say no, Khomeini was always clear about his intentions. But something that isn't clear, and for me, because I was not born at the time of the revolution, it is unclear for me what happened. But ultimately, it became an Islamic revolution. So 1979, around February, Iran's king leaves and the revolution has happened and Khomeini comes to Iran. The event that will come very soon is actually March 8th, which is the International Women's Rights Day. And exactly on March 7th, Khomeini issues his first decree. And this gives a very good idea of how the Islamic Republic just started and how it pictured itself as a system that initially built on oppressing women. So he said that women should be veiled when they are coming to government offices. And in his own words, they should not come naked. This caused a serious backlash by women. Many came to the streets on March 8th, 1979, and they asked for the right because their take was, hey, in the past year, months, we have been as sisters and brothers side by side. Some were wearing a hijab, some were not. And how did it change? What caused this new decree? And something that is quite interesting is how different scholars who are not necessarily religious, they start to minimize and normalize this decree. What they're saying turns into, oh, it's just a piece of cloth. It's just, you know, to 
as a sign to say that we no longer support the monarchy because now a religion is standing against it. And they're not asking you to change the way you're living. It's just in government offices. It's just a veil. You do not need to change anything else. And ultimately, there is a text that I read. And actually, I will share this with you. It is very sad because a lady says, I kept looking around and I didn't see that much men. You know, the men that you had in the past few months that you were protesting the monarchy and suddenly you and a bunch of your friends feel alone because your issue is no longer that important. There is also a woman who actually wrote an article and said, I was one of those who thought, hey, a social revolution is way bigger than whatever they're telling you to wear. It's going to be fine. But what I didn't realize was that the person who's going, who's telling you what to wear is the person who is going to tell you how to think. And that's what we didn't know, that it's going to escalate. So ultimately, the Women's March was somehow suppressed, minimized, and ultimately Ayatollah Khomeini started making different decrees. And the take was, hey, this is an Islamic Republic, an Islamic revolution, and we are going to set the laws based on our understanding of Shiite Islam. So, for example, women had the right to vote. That was not taken, although Khomeini was significantly against that one too, but they took away the part that women can have high offices. For example, an Iranian woman cannot become a president. They cannot become the head of the judiciary system. They cannot become the head of the parliament. So that goes aside. The laws relating to divorce got absolutely changed. So polygamy was authorized for men, Absolutely not for women. Men can divorce women when they want. However, women have to go through a very thorough process and they can ask for divorce under very special circumstances. I think something that your listeners can do is actually find an Iranian friend and ask them if they know a woman who went through divorce. I think that is something that you would hear. Almost every family has someone and every family has a story that by just listening to that story, I think gives a good idea of how difficult it has become. Women ultimately lost the guardianship of the kids. So if a woman successfully divorces, best case scenario, the children can be in her care, but the ultimate custodian for children is always going to be the father. So, for example, if this child needs to receive surgery, then the father has to come and sign the form of consent. So, and again, this is something that some hospitals strongly impose, some don't. Something special about Islamic Republic is the randomness of the laws (laughs) and how much you can just try to navigate your way. But the base of the law says that it's on dads. Also, women who are married needs the authorization of their husbands to receive passports. And also they cannot leave the country 
at will. So a husband can always go and demand his wife to be barred from exiting the country. At the same time, this is not the case for women. And schools got separated. So boys and girls are together in preschool. And then we get separated. And the next time we see each other is really at universities. So even extracurricular activities are separated. I went to like English classes, swimming pool, basketball court. Everything is girls only, boys only. When you enter an airport, you have an entrance for women and an entrance for men. When you go to a theater, it's going to be an entrance for men, entrance for women. So there are always places that we get segregated. At universities, at a time, they wanted to separate the classes and the seats between girls and boys. They were not successful in some of the big famous universities in Iran. But honestly, ultimately, we automatically sat almost in separated ways. Like if there are two guys and there is a seat empty in the middle of them and there is something else, yeah, I wouldn't want the scene. I would just go and sit somewhere else and live my life. You know, also women cannot ride motorcycles, but they can sit on the back. Like it, it doesn't make sense. Absolutely not. Women cannot sing solo. As Dina said, you can hear the women's sound as the chorus. So even if there are two women who are singing together, but the sound seems like one, if there is going to be an issue. So I remember that they were like music tapes that would come and suddenly you'll feel like, did they authorize this? So the laws kept closing doors and women just tried to dig holes as much as they could. Sorry covered a really, really good collection of this all this discrimination. One of them is also inheritance law, right? Inheritance law separates what a parent is leaving for a child in, let's say, three buckets. Two goes to a brother or male in her, uh, male children, and then one portion goes to the daughter. Something that really breaks my heart is that, well, this is what we learned at school. This is the content of our books. We had to learn it to heart and we had to do exams and give conferences and like give seminars in classroom. And I remember how ridiculous we thought this was. And at the same time, well, this is the text of the book and you have to and you have to learn it and write it. So not only there was a break between how the society lived, but there was also a break in what I was learning and receiving in the society, whatever was available to me, and also the way that my head would process it. So even religious, even students in religious families, when they would read the book, they would feel like, this doesn't make sense. However, we had to pretend that not only we understand it, but we agree with it, and we are very strong defenders of the system. So if a parent does not assign their property to their children, automatically the state is going to impose the one-third, two-third law. So you have to have 
very good feminist brothers to give back to you what belongs to you because the state will not do that. Right. Dina, go ahead. No, and then the, even even the worst part is the inheritance law for the moms. So as a as a husband and wife, the husband dies. I had one son and one daughter. The daughter get the one third. The son gets the two third. What get the mom? One eight. One eight. That is the history of how they intentionally tried to remove the half of the population with all the rights and everything that they could. They just, as Sagi very good explained, they not even pulled the chador on our head. They wanted to remove us from the society in every way possible. If you get to a marriage, you are arrested. It's not a marriage. If you get to a kind of a you know workplace, you are a secondhand citizen in any degree that you have. So anyways, we want to get to the good part of it that we are today. I want to tell you also, definitely when you read about equal pay all over the world. I lived in Germany. Sagi was actually living and studying also in Europe. It's not so much about that I want to say, oh, my God, Iran is this and that. We know that we women in general, we have a lot of work to do. When we talk about equal pay, I couldn't even believe that I was reading it, that only five countries, they are having the equal pay. Even countries like U.S. and Germany, they don't have it. And we, our, our soccer players, a few years ago, they had to fight for it, even though they are the number one in the world in U.S. when we are talking about USA. But it's everywhere. We know that. The discrimination at the workplace is everywhere. They don't promote us. They don't let us engage as much as we deserve that. We don't go with the degrees. We don't go based on the you know activities and the engagement of a woman in a team. This is everywhere. I want to remind us that it's definitely the women, life, freedom. Such a beautiful, inclusive slogan started maybe in the street in Iran, but it's really everywhere. That's why the people are so connecting to it, because everywhere in the world, not only in Afghanistan, not only in India, honestly, here in USA, in Germany, in really top leaders' countries, the women are under discrimination and we have a long way to go. We don't forget the abortion law that we lost early this year and we went how many years past. This is why it really boils on me to talk about this in every community that we get in there because maybe maybe today in USA, we are in middle of those hard days, but we want to remind us that with the hard work, with being present, with not giving it up, with raising our voice, we can achieve to be there where we deserve. So in Iran also, in the society, and especially in the workspace and workplaces, they really try to remove women as much as possible and you know decrease their voices. The good thing which is happening, I think, I want to bring an example when it comes to a society, I want to bring it down to a family. Imagine a woman in an abusive marriage in a small family, right? We just get a family as an example. And the marriage is abusive. He is addicted. He's taking advantage. He's, you know, brutal and violence in every way. And the children is also being under these, you know, circumstances, being violate, violated by the, let's say, by the father. 
the woman has two or three options. Either she gives it up, she becomes the victim, and she just goes with the flow and, until she simply, you know, literally dies in this marriage. The other option is that she's trying to ask questions. She's trying to make it really kind of be loud enough and do try to change things. And we know that things with communication with such an abusive system doesn't work. You get even more more punished. And that's why our you know, prisons are full of the you know, journalists, attorneys, women rights activists, environmental activists. So when you want to raise your voice in an abusive kind of a system, that would be probably the result. The other option is that the woman start to really build up build up on her education, on her support system, build up, you know, to, you know, try to get the power from somewhere and don't give the power to this abusive man, right? That's what happened in Iran. The more they pushed the woman in the corner, the more they wanted to tell them, you are nobody and you have no voices and there is no law that is going to support you. You just serve, you just be, become quiet and serve the you know, society as much as you can. For example, there is a statistic in Iran. They say the social engagement, if that word is correct or not, or workplace engagement has increased during the Islamic regime time to 400%. Yes, it has increased because you needed us, because you needed more workforce, because we were cheaper, because you didn't pay as much as you pay to the men. But where was our role? What did we do? How did we fill these roles in the society? Just, just again, as a servant. But anyways, they went to the schools. If you see Sagi has his her postdoctorate here in Harvard. She started in Iran, and she studied actually on one of the most nominated universities. And she has been also studying back in Iran. I think she started with engineering. We have more than 50% 60% of the university actually seats given to, you know, taken over by the girls. And it's interesting to know that a lot of technical fields are also filled by the girls. So they didn't give up. They really started to educate themselves, to know what's happening, to claim whatever is remaining, basically, to do the best that they could do at this system. What happened is we are right now seeing a generation on the street where the mothers has been suppressed with this regime to the depth of, you know, brutality that you cannot even imagine. But they raise children that they know they write. They know about dignity. They are brave. They are informed. They say they are no TV generation. There are kids that they are listening to podcasts and YouTubes, and they don't even, I, I really heard last week, sorry, I don't know if you heard or, or not, one of these people who were arrested, they said, we asked them, who is your president? And she didn't know the name of the president of Iran. This generation, honestly, raised by the mothers, we, we hear that a lot of time, who knows about their privacy, their boundaries, their, you know, their simple human right and simple normal life that they deserve. This woman have been the woman who not only educated themselves, they are also the gardener of these flowers that you see in this today's scene in Iran. 
That's how it really fires back on them. And also, I want to bring it from here, maybe, to the situation that you know that everything that Islamic regime tried to show us, it made us to think more twice and three times that why? Why I cannot do whatever my brother is doing? Why I cannot participate as my male colleague is participating in this business trip? Why my mom cannot, you know, do his edu- her education if she wants to do it? And all of these whys, in a way, brought us today where we are. You see one scene, one last drop, that really it's the Masa Amini was not the first girl which was, you know, was killed by this regime. It was not the only young people who was suppressed with, the, with this regime. There is a last drop in an abusive relationship. And that's the moment that you really think, okay, then now is my turn. Now is enough is enough. That's what we say today. I want to add something about women in STEM, so science, tech, engineering, and math in Iran, which our concept of education is actually was actually very different from what we have, for example, in European states. We would hear in the news that there is a lot of effort to encourage girls to participate in STEM. While in contrast, in Iran, we wanted to go there. We wanted to do that because that would give me a tool for a job. And also, why can't I? Because the moment that they start taking that back, because ultimately what we received was a woman's most important role in a society is to become a mother and raise children. That's what we grew up with. And their take was, okay, you are getting until high school to become good moms. But then university was not banning girls. And to enter universities, we had to go through a, an exam. So we don't have that many interviews. Some, some fields of study had interviews, some others didn't. And okay, if there is an exam that I can go through and then I'll enter university, I'm going to do that one because that's going to give me a route, a way to earn for myself. And a lot of times financial freedom is going to give you more leeway to be more independent socially. And then, you know, try to build some boundaries for yourself because if you are absolutely dependent on someone else, how can you claim boundary? You just cannot. You are an extension of another person. Something that I remember as I was, I have some articles open over here. I remember that the number of the girls in universities started getting higher and higher than boys. And around 2001-ish, the girls reached the 60%. And that was when some chatter and talk about, hey, we have to put a regression (laughs) mathematically to adjust the population of students in universities. So some topics, for example, archaeology, what else? Computer science, nuclear physics, they started enrolling more boys compared to girls. 
And since we all entered the university through an exam, that would mean that a girl who had a higher score compared to a guy, she would no longer enter because now that field has reached its quota and now the boys can come in. And I remember that when articles were written, the argument that girls received was, yeah, this will create better husband material. It's it's ridiculous. And I don't know how we just didn't start screaming. Maybe we were screaming in our heads, but it was just out of this world. When everywhere around you is gaslighting you into believing something, you would think, you know what, I'm going to create a tiny corner for myself and I am going to live my life the best way I can. I believe in a lot of articles you see about how Iranian women try to adjust hijab, add fashion elements, do better makeup to enhance their faces or get educated, insert themselves in society. None of these are thanks to the Islamic Republic. All of the credit should absolutely be given to any and every woman who try to just keep building themselves. So if the statistic is going high, it's not like anyone was encouraged to become that way. And I want to make sure that this credit is not given to the state because internet came so women had access to blogs and vlogging and a lot of sisterhoods started forming. So now girls knew that, hey, there is this lawyer that if I want to go for a divorce, they can give me a better counsel. And then women started understanding that women started understanding that others have the same issues about sexuality. Others have the same concerns. And that was actually, I think, that would be the early 2000s to maybe 2010. That was the boom of Persian blogs. And a lot of bloggers got arrested and internet censorship came up. But many started realizing that, hey, I'm not alone in this. So I'm not being crazy. This does not make sense. And something that I believe the Islamic Republic have masterfully done is to segregate and separate people by different ways. My generation is separated from my parents. Men and women are separated from each other. Ethnic minorities are separated from people in bigger cities. Those who have access to learning English, French, other languages, they get separated. So They masterfully pitted anyone against each other because we didn't know how similar we are. I would say even myself, I have the experience of living in Europe, also in the East Coast, and right now I'm in Minnesota. When I saw the protesters in Berlin that were 100,000, I was cheerful because I didn't think we were so many. But we actually are. (laughs) So I think that is the moment that Iranians realize, hey, we do outnumber these people. Our way of thinking is actually more progressive. So why don't we just stand together 
in solidarity. We have the numbers. We are not armed. Yeah. And they have managed their way to have lobbies in Europe and states and Pacific countries and Eastern countries like China and Russia. Fine. But we are way too many. I think that is something I am feeling now. And also something else is that, hey, other generations care. Because my generation thought, oh, the one before us, they did a revolution. They don't know what happened. What can I do? Or the generation after me, they have internet. They're fine. Now I realize that, oh, no, all this time they were looking at a 2009 protest. And suddenly their roots under trees get connected to each other and feel lifted up by the energy and enthusiasm and Because there are days that you feel very down, but someone else is feeling better. So they're going to lift you up. That's how I am feeling. And that's what I think is quite different from previous protests. So let's talk about what has been happening for the past 90 days, roughly. At the time of this recording, it's been roughly three months since this revolution started. Tell us what's happening in Iran, because like you said, I heard a lot about it at the beginning, and now it's not being covered as much. So I don't know that listeners really know what's happening on the ground there right now. Yeah. Yes, actually, there is. We are at the stage that we can say in the last three months in this really short period of the time, we can say we really maybe made a big leap of success of maybe, I don't know, literally saying 70 years ahead of our game right now. So they started actually this, uh, came together with, you know, this Masa Amini's hijab is not properly wear. And then maybe a week or 10 days, so we can correct me, people were talking about, oh my God, we are going to you know, get rid of this hijab, compulsory hijab, or we are going to fight back and finally get rid of this police, which is actually controlling the hijab. And within 10 days or two weeks, we all knew, no, we are not going to under-negotiate what we want. We want what we want is a regime change. It was within really not even two weeks And you heard the voice that you need to go. This is it. Your time is over. We gave you too much of a time. So that's the first thing, which is a huge success. The other thing that Savi somehow was covering it all the years, because we have different ethnicities, a lot of time Iran, because they actually affiliated that so much to the Islam. They are thinking we are an Arabic country with all respect, with all culture, and even Arabic countries. We are more, if you want to compare us, you can compare us to India. We are a country with very diverse ethnicity and cultures. And we are always at the danger, or better to say, a you know, totality regime like Iran that is always gaslighting with different things. They always talk about these things. Oh, my God, the Kurds want to, you know, separate themselves and they are actually after their own authority and they want to build their own country or in Baluchistan. All this, you know, re- region of Iran, which is at the side, even Azerbaijan, they always expose the people, if, you, if these things get out of the control, we are going to lose our Iran because we are at the danger of this, you know, minor uh, ethnic groups. And actually, they bombard really like their own people in Kurdistan. They made a genocide, not once and twice, in Baluchistan. 
And this was all about, you know, try to trigger this anger between them, which has been always discriminated in a very, very, you know, sad way. But you know what? They didn't. They stopped. Actually, they stand tall against this brutality, but they never talked about this, that, okay, you're doing this to me because I'm a Kurd, or you're doing this to me because I'm a Baluch. We really build up the solidarity between different ethnic groups like never before. I mean, I cannot tell you how this country is standing so strongly together. The other thing was the solidarity, as Sari says, between generations. We had such a gap between generations. For years and years, generation is asking, how did you do this revolution? How did you, you, do that? you did not pay attention to what is happening? And then maybe the other generation is saying, the younger generation, you are so, you know, you are not participating. You are thinking about yourself. You are thinking about your own whatever world. And you don't see that you, you actually, you don't see yourself as a member of this society. And this gap between generations suddenly changed. The bright youth and brave people on the street And everyone is really cheering for them. We were thinking they are in their rooms and listening to their podcasts or, you know, rap music and stuff like that. And they don't care about anything. They were become a hero overnight. And we all think, oh, we owe them something. We need to, you know, be behind them. And that's that's another huge, huge success for us. The other thing is actually the solidarity between all different type of, you know, group in the, in the society, from artists, from athletes, from, you know, women. Yeah, of course, it starts with the women and with the youth, youth people. But we got a lot of people coming in because everybody was at the discrimination at some level. And that, that pain brought us together. And we saw that so many support and empathy and engagement from different groups The other thing that we find, actually, it was a huge achievement for us, is Iranian inside and outside. They were separated. As Savi says, the total behavior of a regime is that they can really separate you. They stop the conversation anywhere that they can. They were blaming us. Oh, my God, you left the country. You be quiet. You don't tell me what to do. Come here and live here in these circumstances, and then I see what you can do. And people outside Iran, oh, my God, how can you live in these circumstances and don't say anything? You are 80 million of the people, 70 million. You need only 2 million people of coming out. How you are, you know, getting along with this and stay silent? No, it, now it was the time. People inside Iran, they go out in the street. People outside Iran, they really stand behind this with everything that they can Rally on the street, more than 150 cities every single week. More than 150 cities across the world every single Saturday. We are out. Letters to the parliament members, letters to the media, letters to the you know UN and all these activist things, perf- art performances. I-, I have a list of activity that Iranian outside Iran they did, and the list is endless. We are not to the level that we go to the hunger strike, to sit down strike. I was yesterday at the Capitol. I live in San Francisco, but I could drive only about an hour to go to Sacramento. And our people are sitting down in front of the Capitol building in Sacramento because of the execution. When the level of the violence, the more the level of the violence went up, 
the, the, our you know, action plan has also changed and we got louder and louder. We got 100K people, as Sari says, in Berlin together. That was just to show them how many we are. But also we have, at, I think at this moment, two petitions at the level of one million signature. We got the UN to create the investigation committee against the violence of human rights in Iran. This is not happening every day. I mean, this is really very, very rare that they get to the next level. This is the highest action that UN can take. This was all about the pressure that we put on them. We are igniting a revolution, woman life freedom in Iran, which is just the ignite, and it's going to go all over the world. The totality regime, they put you in the corner, they shut you down, they kill you, they really do everything that they can, that you become a person who is either depressed or is lost or is confused or is leaving a country, for example, right? But all of that, we turn the game around. We are now having, actually, we are in control. We are are the one who has the control of the game. We are the one who next takes the next step and they need to come after us and react on our acts. And everything turned out to, they say always the dictators, they come and the best tools is to create fears. But it works once, it works twice. Third time, the fear turns to anger because your game is over. You know, I'm not afraid of you anymore. When people in this high level of the, you know, brutality, they still come to the street. They still open their chest and really say, okay, come, get me, kill me. But it is over. That's enormous. That's history happening in front of us, Ami. I do want to add about the new role that a lot of celebrities have taken. So something that the Islamic Republic has done is that they intentionally and actively removed a lot of social studies courses and professors from the universities. Many activists in Iran are currently in prison or have been in prison for the past more than 15 years. Some of them have some ideas and thoughts that is a bit behind what people are feeling right now because they have been stuck in prison. Prison kind of freezes you, the state you are. Although they try their best to keep in touch with the society, however, when they put you in a solitary confinement, how can you imagine what is happening? Something interesting that I was reading about is how actresses, both in Iran and also outside of Iran, women in sports, athletes, and also those who have a platform, who are celebrities, have now taken the platform that they have available to them to raise the voice. So in a way, the Islamic Republic managed to remove activists from the society. What they didn't realize was that viewers and so and influencers have an interactive connection to each other. And when an influencer of any kind, an athlete, an actress, sees how people 
feel about a situation, they are going to be their voice. Because if not, you are going to lose your platform. And also, this is the pain they endured. So at the very beginning of the protests in Iran, some actresses, actually, they're pretty... Elderly, I think Katoyun Ria, he was an actress who removed her veil and it just went as a domino. Another actress removed her veil, another one, another one. When, yes, all of them got arrested and apprehended, and they some have been released on bail, some are still in prison. While this was happening, people like Nazanin Bunyadi, Nazanin Nur, Tara Girami, these are actresses who are living out of Iran. They can go about their lives, you know, but the connection that they started feeling to the motherland and well, because they have seen Iranians and they know about the struggle. So they started to echo the voice of Iranians. Nazanin Bunyadi is an activist. Her take was, okay, if you are silencing Iranian women, I am the one who's going to go to the White House and I'm going to be the voice of you. I think something that has been going on is that Iranians have had a lot of representatives in the Western media and, you know, as speakers. Because of the separation of the United States and Iran, we haven't had that much of knowledge of day-to-day life in Iran. Any movie or series that is somehow about Iran actually gets a lot of audience because it is quite mysterious to the eye of a non-Iranian. I think something that people are claiming right now is to gain back their voice. So they would say, hey, Whatever organization you are, I'm going to speak for myself and you no longer can say I am the representative of all Iranians. You can say that you have such and such number of followers, but you cannot say that you are representing all of us. Iran is such a mosaic of different ethnicities, races, opinions, that only an inclusive democracy can put us back together. I think the moment that anyone wants to break from that and wants to rally everyone under a forced umbrella, they are going to receive backlash because of what people experienced in the revolution of 1979. So they no longer justify accepting something just because, let's say, just for the sake of being united. They would say, Either everyone is being represented or this is not going to work. And as I'm protesting the Islamic Republic, I am going to protest whatever you are suggesting because you're not including me and this group and that group. I think what has been happening is a reclaiming of the flag, of national anthem, that the, the old national anthem that Iranians used, of the narrative, you know, I think this is something that has been taken from Iranians for so long. And another version was shown to the media. 
and you know Iranians were so tired and when you are gaslit for so long you just feel like I don't want to deal with this trauma if I'm out I don't want to deal with it those who are in Iran they feel like no one's gonna ever hear me so let me just have my tiny corner after 40 years we are claiming this back and this is this on its own is a cause to celebrate and now that Iranians have managed to get some actionable wins such as United Nations investigative commission such as Iran being ousted from the United Nations status of women group I think these are tiny wins that really lift you up and you feel like okay if you're not powerless this learned powerlessness this learned hopelessness is being broken down it feels like hey I have an agency in what I want and how I can change the world. So let us keep pushing and asking for what is our right. I'm so inspired hearing about these achievements that have happened, and especially, as you point out, in such a short time. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the dangers that these protesters face every day when they go out to protest. Dangers are imminent and also horribly consequential. It can it can result in death, actually. The latest numbers that I have from December 7th says that more than 600 people have been killed. 60 of them are children. And more than 18,000 people, based on Iran state media, have been imprisoned. So we are dealing with a lot of people who risk their lives as they go to protests. And right now, Iran's parliament has asked for the highest punishment, which is execution. And Iran's judicial system, with the support of the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei, are actually issuing death sentences to people. One of the slogans that I heard in in our gathering last week was, hey, USA, remember, we told you in November, Iran issues death penalty to those who ask for liberty. This is something that Iranians have been talking about. And there are reports, for example, from CNN, a great investigative reporting they did, that how women and also men are being raped in prisons, how those who are imprisoned keep getting moved between different cities. So it is very difficult to keep track of who is where and who got what sentence. I think something that we have to keep in mind is that this is an authoritarian and also totalitarian regime and they feel powerless and they keep attacking. Something that other countries have to stand firmly is the right of Iranian people to protest, their their fundamental right to life, and they have to keep demanding that Iranian protesters remain healthy and also alive. So, there is a lot of danger. Your GC and security forces come to schools and get kids and bring them out. Every day we hear of someone being kidnapped, their body being found. So 
it is an absolute chaos by the hands of the government, and yet people go and protest. And when I see that, as I'm in awe, I think my role is to echo their voice more and more, and also raise awareness about the dangers that they face. There are a lot of petitions out there. If you really look up on the change.org and other stuff, please participate in our petitions. It really raises our voice. That's the mean, this, this is the minimum you can do. Also, we want to ask you to ask media. We don't get coverage in U.S. I am jealous when I hear from my German friend how much coverage they have. They have constantly breaking news in local news. And when we go every Saturday out in San Francisco and we call ABC News Group, we call these local medias, they tell us every week is the same thing. We don't come out for the same thing. They are so rude. It's not every week the same thing. There are so many things happening every day in Iran. But we know that there is more than more than regular media coverage at this moment, especially I emphasize in U.S., they don't cover us. Please ask your media. Please stand tall with us. Please come to our rallies. In every city that you live, we have Saturday rallies. And most of the time, the 90% of the chant is in English. We would love to have you among us and have your support. And at the same time, call to action is we appreciate you. Really, outside Iran, the non-Iranian community, they really did enormous support. They showed, as Sari was calling our celebrity, I, I want to say from Oprah Winfrey, Kim Kardashian, are you freaking kidding me? She was storing about Masa Amini. And people that we never, so many concerts, music concerts across the Europe and the world, we are so appreciating you. And for all the congressmen and women, those who are actually having a higher position, and they stand up, they stand tall for Iranian people today, your name, your name stays in the history. You are supporting this time of the history. And we would love to ask the others to really consider, we know that we are the winner. We know that we are changing the history. If you want to be in our team, that's your time. Don't miss that. History is watching you. I so appreciate hearing about all of these. And what I've heard from both of you is that some of the action items that listeners can take are to contact our media so that we are we have local coverage and national coverage of the protests and the revolution and to also participate. We can look up and see where events are happening in our area. I'm wondering if you have any other action item that and enable us because I know that these listeners are going to be feeling empathy and so much compassion and, and a real desire to help. So tell us what we can do. Absolutely. I would strongly encourage our, all journalists in the U.S., outside, to do investigative journalism work, talk with Iranians, and start digging what happened in 79, what is happening right now, try to talk more and more with Iranians. Instead of looking for experts, listen to stories. I think the power of storytelling is something that has been missing. Also, you can search on Twitter, on also Instagram, for hashtag Mahsa Amini, M-A-H-S-A-A-M-I-N-I. 
and a lot of posts will pop up. There is a group called Action for Iran that they very frequently put out different action items. But what I would suggest is to just search for hashtag Mahsa Amini, Action for Iran, and see what news pops up, what action items are popping up. And also, I think adding to Sari's point, we are calling out artists and journalists and influencers. We have a call out for artists, Ami. Yes, please. Can you tell us about your quilt project? <laughs> yeah, as you, as I mentioned, as you actually mentioned before, in our nonprofit, the name is Iranian Woman in Network. Our website is very easy. I win. Iwin.org, I-W-I-N, I-W-I-N.org. We are actually thinking that our, our mission statement says clearly we want to empower women through art. And we believe that this is one of this, the ways we can do that. As Sari says, sharing stories is always one of the most powerful and way to connect to each other. And our call-out is very simple. We are asking everybody across the globe to come out with a piece of canvas because we want to make the quilt for you. You don't make quilts. We just ask for it, 12 inch by 12 inch on a canvas fabric to do whatever you can express yourself around this slogan, woman, life, freedom. I always bring this simple example and I think I'm going to do that. Let's make a tree, a bird on it, and the bird is singing woman, life, freedom. That's it. You got it. So just the requirement is to work and express yourself on a 12 by 12 inch canvas fabric. Look at our website. There is an address. You can send it to us. Even if you're outside US, you can send it to us. And we are making them to the quilt banners. We are inspired by other you know, organizations. I think one of the largest one, which is really I am so grateful for them. They did a great job was the AIDS Memorial Quilt. They made it to 48,000 banners. And it is one of the largest public art that the humanity has seen before, ever. So we, are, we think the sky is the limit. Come out with your ideas. Send us your artwork. And also, if it is a digital work, you have an option to send an email to us. Everything is on the website. I don't want to make it long here. And if you think you like this project and you want to be advocate of it, be in, be in touch with us because we are reaching out to art teacher at the schools, to the, you know, art, even universities and everything, to yoga classes, reach out to your communities. If you like the idea, but you think you are not artistic, artistic, you can talk to any group that you are. I promise you in every group you bring the idea, there are three people at least that they want to participate in this. And we like to have your story among the story of Iranian women. Our stories, as Sari says, we are more alike than being different. This is all about being a human. This is all about living with dignity. This is all about to be, to claim your right, your, your basic human right. And thank you very much for the opportunity, Ami, that I could announce this. And one more time, the website. I win, I win.org. 
I'm so excited to participate in that quilt and I'm going to talk to my kids and their friends and you'll be getting squares from us. Yes. <laughs> oh, thank you. So exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you. thank you to both of you. I, I learned so much from you and I'm so inspired by, by both of you and so grateful for your time today. Again, Dina Asna and Sagi Sagazate. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the work that you're doing. It's, it's fantastic. Yes. Thank you again, Dina and Sahi. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today. I hope you'll join me in choosing one or two action items that were listed in the episode today, including creating a 12 by 12 canvas square for the Women Life Freedom Quilt. Again, visit iwiniwin.org for details. And also note that these quilts will be presented on International Women's Day on March 18th of 2023. So if you're hearing this episode after that date, you may have missed the window, but please look up other ways to support the brave activists in Iran in the current moment. I'd like to thank Sam Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And I'd like to thank all of you listeners for joining us today for this important episode. Then next week, we will kick off season three officially with Anne Firth Murray, the professor of my class on international women's health and human rights during graduate school and the founder of the Global Fund for Women. She's also the author of the book, From Outrage to Courage, the unjust and unhealthy situation of women in poorer countries and what they are doing about it. She'll share unique insights from a lifetime of work with women around the world next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 